Hi there, colleagues from the American Federation for Medical Research and other podcast listeners. This is Richard McCallum. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, the journal for the AFMR. And each month we have a podcast, which is hopefully uh, an informative one for you, the members and other listeners. And we, we try to base it on what may be appropriate for that particular time of the year. I have a very good editorial assistant, Karina Espino, and she has guided me as to what is the so-called month uh, that recognizes uh, certain entities. There's many entities that are recognized actually in the month of November, but selfishly, I chose diabetes. It's National Diabetic Month, and I selfishly chose it because I know that I'm going to have a, a wonderful guest, an expert, national expert who can really guide us and, and help us uh, in, overcome some of the some of the knowledge points that may be missing in trying to tame this epidemic, which seems to have no, uh, you know, no heights, no limits. But we're trying to make some inroads, and he's going to be perfectly, uh, perfectly uh, positioned, and his background will allow us to understand where we're going. I'm referring to uh, Dr. David Sestola who's a um, professor and director here at Texas Tech, University Health, pa Health Sciences Center in El Paso, of our Center for Emphasis in Diabetes and Metabolism. At the same time, he's the interim vice president for research. Let me give you a brief background uh, about David's um, curriculum here and get, get to some questions. Obviously, he's a New Yorker in uh, his college background at SUNY Binghamton went to Boston for medical school and PhD, Boston University School of Medicine, um, went on to Washington University, Barnes Hospital, where he became an assistant associate professor with tenure and was involved there with the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics, um, as well as being director of the graduate program in biochemistry at WashU. He then went to uh, the Brody School of Medicine, East Carolina University in Greenville as professor of biochemistry and molecular biology, as well as the associate dean for research and professor of clinical laboratory sciences. So David for a while was um, a pirate. Uh, Pirates, the name of the football team from East Carolina. Uh, he then uh, moved to North Texas to become vice president for research and innovation University of North Texas, all sciences, et cetera, in Fort Worth. And also uh, professor of the Institute of Cardiovascular and Metabolic Diseases. We were fortunate enough to attract him here in 2016 to Texas Tech El Paso as professor and director of our Center of Emphasis in Diabetes and Metabolism. And he has since uh, been very innovative in his work and in his lab there, as well as being a leader as our interim director for the uh, Office of Vice President for Research. So with that rather long introduction, Dave, let me welcome you officially to our podcast. Thank you, Dr. McCallum. I'm really delighted to be here and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you uh, about uh, Diabetes Month, uh, month of November and to talk about some highlights and some areas of emphasis 
particularly on the front end of the diabetes problem, um, we, we as clinicians, we spend a lot of time uh, monitoring and controlling, helping patients control their disease and helping to prevent secondary uh, complications. But uh, there's a lot of work to be done on the front end of the problem. And I think this is where the greatest potential lies in really changing the game. Well, David, why don't, you so, elaborate on, why don't you go ahead and elaborate on some of the work you're doing and others are doing and uh, your vision for this area? So, as you know, we use glucose and glucose surrogates such as A1C to monitor diabetes progress and diabetes status and to uh, determine what kind of medications, what kind of uh, therapeutic approach we're going to use to control the disease. And as a marker of diabetes status and people who already have diabetes, or perhaps in some cases pre-diabetes, glucose is a pretty good marker of current status. But when you're trying to assess whether somebody is on their way to diabetes, glucose turns out to be uh, very um inadequate way of monitoring the progress. So I think in the diabetes field, we make the mistake of conflating diabetes as a screening tool for future risk for diabetes versus diabetes as a current diagnostic tool to evaluate somebody's diabetic control. And so on the front end of the problem, um, and on the way to type two diabetes, of course, there's a lot of compensation by the pancreas and the liver um, to insulin resistance. And so um, as a result of insulin resistance, the glucose and lipid levels would tend to creep up in the blood. But a, a healthy pancreas and healthy islets have the ability to compensate for that by hypersecreting insulin and controlling the uptake of insulin through the liver in such a way that you can maintain high steady state levels of insulin in the blood this phenomenon called compensatory hyperinsulinemia or compensated insulin resistance results in glucose and lipid levels being lowered back down into the normal range. It's a bit like the car uh, with a manual transmission uh, being stuck in first gear. If the transmission is broken and you cannot shift out of first gear, the engine compensates by revving at very high RPM in order to compensate for the broken transmission. In effect, that's what the pancreas and the islets are doing um, is compensating for insulin resistance in liver, muscle, and, uh, and um, adipose tissue by uh, maintaining high levels of insulin in the blood. And the body can do this for quite some time, in some cases for years, maybe even decades. And so the patient would go in for a wellness exam and their primary care provider and there'd typically be a CMP, a CBC, and a lipid panel. And the lipid panel would look normal, and the glucose uh, levels would look normal, the A1C would be normal, and yet the patient would have uh, rather frank insulin resistance with compensatory hyperinsulinemia that is not detected through conventional screening using conventional measures. So our group has set out to try to better understand the front end of the problem and to try to understand how to address it. And so uh, individuals with compensated insulin resistance do not meet the criteria for prediabetes and do not meet the criteria for metabolic syndrome. When you think about the five criteria for metabolic syndrome, three of the five are lipids and glucose related. 
And so if your lipids are normal and your glucose is normal, you won't show up on the radar for metabolic syndrome either. And so what do we do about it? Well, what we can do is try to use other newly emerging tools that can screen for this early condition. Uh, we can also take more advantage of fasting insulin levels. Now, fasting insulin, as many know, has uh, some limitations to it. Uh, it's not a perfect uh, marker for detecting compensated insulin resistance, but a positive or a high level of fasting insulin is certainly a clue to the clinician, especially the primary care provider, that indeed there's, there's a very good chance that this subject has compensated insulin resistance. If the insulin is low, then it's ambiguous because the high, there's a high rate of false positives with fasting insulin levels. So our lab has actually come up with some new tools for addressing this, and uh, the tools are based on leveraging the, the unique surveillance properties of water molecules. We tend to overlook water because it's so ubiquitous and abundant in the body, but there's, there's a reason why it's ubiquitous and abundant, and that's because water can hydrogen bond with virtually every protein and lipoprotein in the blood and with many other components of our, our cells. And so... Um, if you can somehow capture water's ability to surveil changes in proteins and lipoproteins, you end up with a global view of metabolic shifts that are going on in the body. And of course, uh, this compensated insulin resistance phenomenon results not only in insulin resistance itself and the changes to the shape and number of lipoprotein particles in the blood, uh, it also uh, results in, in inflammation and clotting factor abnormalities and acute phase response, if you will, that's a relatively subtle one. Um, and, and if you're not looking for it, it's easy to miss. So we, we've come up with a new tool that, that utilizes portable magnetic resonance devices to be able to capture this information that's being viewed through the eyes of the water molecules in whole blood plasma or serum. And uh, the portable magnetic resonance device measures T2. It's the same T2 that we think of in T2-weighted imaging and MRI. But in this case, we're not imaging. We're literally m measuring or quantifying the T2 using a portable device about the size of a toaster. And in a few minutes, you can get a global view of somebody's metabolic health by monitoring either their plasma serum or whole blood T2 values. So our group has been uh, performing scientific validation on these T2 measurements, particularly in plasma and serum, as part of a, an NHLBI-funded project uh, using samples from the premier clinical trial, which was conducted some years ago to look at patients with mild to moderate hypertension. But in this case, we're using the samples from the premier trial and a secondary analysis of premier in order to uh, scientifically validate T2 as a tool for uh, detecting or screening for compensated insulin resistance, but also to see how this, uh, this condition and the T2 values respond to the lifestyle interventions that were part of the clinical trial. So there, there were really two fundamental questions that needed to be answered about compensated insulin resistance. Some would argue that perhaps this is just some kind of a physiological adaptation and it's really not a clinical condition, and it really doesn't have much significance in terms of future diabetes. So we set out to answer that question. The other issue is how prevalent is this in the U.S.? And so we also set out to answer that question. 
So I'll start with the prevalence question and say that uh, based on analyses, population-weighted analyses of the National Health and Examination Survey from the U.S., um, it, it's amazingly prevalent, especially in younger people. So we think of uh, type 2 diabetes being a disease of older age, and indeed, overt diabetes is more prevalent in people ages 65 and above. Um, but the compensated insulin resistance, that is the much earlier uh, condition that leads towards type 2 diabetes is actually just the opposite in terms of age distribution. It's most prevalent in teenagers. It's 22% of U.S. teenagers that, that have hidden compensated insulin resistance that doesn't meet the criterion for either prediabetes, diabetes, or metabolic syndrome. And then um, it's also highly prevalent in young adults between ages 20 and 39. It's about 15% of that population. So it's highly prevalent in the U.S., especially in younger people. It's hidden in that it escapes um, the normal screening we do with glucose and lipids and A1C. And um, the, the next question is, does it actually increase somebody's risk for future diabetes? And the, the short answer to that question is yes. And this is based on analysis of a longitudinal study that's been going on for over 30 years called CARDIA. Um, and, and cardio set out to look for risk factors for future cardiovascular disease, but it also turns out to be a very good prospective study for studying future diabetes as type 2 diabetes takes years to decades to develop. And so it's, uh, the cardio data set starts with individuals ages 18 to 30, so people that are right in that, that age range where compensatory hyperinsulinemia is very prevalent. And it followed them for 30 years. And, and what we found is that um, compensatory hyperinsulinemia or compensated insulin resistance almost triples an individual's risk for future diabetes if you analyze it in a raw sense. If you correct for other known risk factors for diabetes, it turns out to be a doubling. But that's a, a rather dramatic uh, result uh, and a result that we had reported about a year ago um, and so uh, I think what we have here is we have a highly prevalent hidden condition, prevalent in teenagers and young adults, that's not picked up by conventional screening, that uh, increases, nearly doubles an individual's risk, even after correcting for other well-defined diabetes risk factors. So we, we have in this diabetes pandemic a major problem at the front end where we're not uh, picking it up and addressing it in the beginning in order to preserve pancreatic beta cells and prevent individuals from not only becoming overtly uh, an overt diagnosis of diabetes, but also preventing prediabetes and saving the pancreas as a result. So uh, some really outstanding work by Ralph DeFranzo and colleagues showed a number of years ago that by the time you develop prediabetes, impaired glucose tolerance, or even impaired fasting glucose, you've already lost about half to two-thirds of the secretory capacity of the beta cells for insulin. And so, um, in effect, when we screen for prediabetes, we're picking up a condition that's already pretty far advanced. And so, the goal is to identify compensated insulin resistance early on to fix it uh, through improving insulin sensitivity early on and, and save uh, beta cells from losing their ability to secrete insulin. 
And that's the approach. Yeah. Well, Dave, that's that's amazing information. Uh, I've certainly heard one of your lectures before, but it's always, uh, I always pick up new pearls. So as, as a clinician who tries to, uh, tries to be astute, uh, do any of these so-called uh, compensated hyperinsulinemics have any subtle signs? Like we look at, you know, obviously in type 2 diabetes, we don't think about weight loss. We think about weight gain. We think about in diabetes otherwise, polyuria, nocturnal urination, uh, subtle weight loss. Um, are there any clinical differences among these teenagers and 20-year-olds that are floating around that could be picked up by an astute clinician, or is it really totally underground? I, I think uh, the answer is yes and no. I, I think that um, for the most part, this condition is hidden and underground, and even an astute clinician can easily miss it in, a, in the context of a wellness exam. Keep in mind that um, all of these individuals, essentially all of these individuals are asymptomatic. Um, the only reason they would be in the physician's office is for a wellness exam. And, and even when you run the uh, standard of care wellness exam with appropriate blood screening, none of those markers would show this. So you have to have, I think in many cases, some index of suspicion. Um, but I would say the one tool that we don't use nearly as much as we should in this context is a fasting insulin value. Like I said before, it has its limitations, but um, it's better than nothing. And now that we know that this condition is so highly prevalent um, in teenagers and young adults, um, we, we might give more consideration to a fasting insulin. When the insulin levels are above approximately 11 to 12 micro-international units per milliliter, that's a, a, a calibrated cut point for fasting hyperinsulinemia. Um, when they're above 11 to 12, that's when we really should have a serious suspicion for this and go looking for it. Um, mm. uh, there are plenty of individuals who have this condition who have a normal BMI. So BMI and obesity is not uh, a very reliable uh, indicator. However, people with elevated BMI, of course, we're gonna have a higher suspicion of this because um, of its relationship with insulin resistance. But there are plenty of people with normal BMIs that slip under the radar that have this condition as well. So, yeah. um, now, How yes. about the fact you said that the pancreas is already suffering probably 50% or more loss of pancreatic beta cells over time before you get a traditionally a positive hemoglobin A1C or some other test. Uh, can there be or is there some... Uh, move afoot to try to restore, preserve, or improve uh, the residual pancreatic remaining function, or try to compensate for what's been lost. Can that be can that be addressed earlier in their careers as well? Yeah. So the the moral of the story is the sooner you detect this slow march towards type two diabetes the better the options are for correcting the problem, uh, for preserving residual beta cell secretion function, and in some cases for uh, reversing the condition if somebody has just recently been diagnosed with either prediabetes or diabetes. Uh, prediabetes is not formally a diagnosis, of course, but uh, even for individuals who've been formally diagnosed with early type two diabetes, 
there's there are possibilities for not only uh, reversing that condition uh, through lifestyle measures, and in some cases, perhaps through pharmaceuticals, um, there, there's also a possible remission, a sustained remission, by reducing the insulin resistance. So if you have partial beta cell secretion, uh, the balance between uh, residual beta cell function and insulin resistance is what determines whether you uh, are able to establish glucose tolerance or not. And so if you can reduce the insulin resistance in people with residual beta cell function, and then of course you can push them back towards a non-diabetes phenotype. Um, and the degree to which the, that residual function exists determines how far you can go with that. Um, for people in the pre-diabetes category, uh, you certainly can slow down this, the progression towards type two diabetes and hopefully prevent that progression um, if you can uh, reduce insulin resistance and preserve uh, existing beta cell function. Uh, this sort of brings up the whole uh, <clears throat> work that was done through the U.S. Diabetes Prevention Program and Outcome Study. Uh, in that study, they showed that either with lifestyle measures or metformin, um, you could delay and in some cases prevent the progression of diabetes the, the results of that study were impressive and they were statistically significant, but in terms of clinical impact, they were fairly modest. And part of the reason was because the, the diabetes prevention program study started with people with late uh, pre-diabetes, if you will. They started with individuals who already had impaired glucose tolerance and were almost um, almost uh, in the diabetes diagnostic category at the time they started the study. So when you start late and you try to prevent the condition, your outcomes are going to be more modest. If you start earlier, then you have a lot more beta cell function to work with, and uh, the chances are for getting much bigger diabetes prevention outcomes that was found in that evidence-based study. The study design started with people late in the course of prediabetes, partly because of the pragmatic challenges of how many years it would take to have enough uh, incident cases of diabetes to be able to do the study. So some of that was just practical uh, clinical trial design. Um, uh, but really, in reality, uh, uh, just like cancer, early detection and intervention is going to lead to much better outcomes um, than, than uh, waiting until it's stage two or stage three. Uh, has there ever been any interest in, in taking someone with a hemoglobin A1C less than 6.5 and teenagers or young adults and doing a study where half are on metformin for, for 10 years or 12 or more and half are not with sort of a prophylactic metformin study? I guess there's other drugs that might preserve um, beta cells, but um, has anyone ever gone to that extent, sort of like taking a baby aspirin to prevent... Um, cardiovascular events? Yeah, to, to some extent, the U.S. Diabetes Prevention Program has done that with metformin, as well as uh, they also had a lifestyle intervention arm. Yeah. Um, and the metformin was, in the beginning, the lifestyle intervention arm seemed to be more effective than the metformin arm, but both of them were effective. Mm. Uh, as time went on and the outcome study and the follow-up period lengthened to 15 years, um, the difference between the metformin arm and the lifestyle intervention arm re were reduced. They, they were essentially the same. Mm. And so uh, both of them were statistically significant, but uh, outcomes were still fairly modest. 
And like I said before, it's because the the subjects almost had diabetes at baseline. And so, <clears throat> so it, to answer your question, yes, the metformin has been shown to be effective. Um, but I, I think there's an opportunity for using other pharmaceuticals uh, in this context. And there are some studies that are being designed along those lines. Yeah, I noticed that um, you mentioned uh, in your discussion as far as things that you might uh, coach me on was, uh, you know, the reduction of diabetes complications, which is jumping ahead, obviously, past prevention. But um, apparently you've had some experience or some interest in the SGL2 T2 inhibitors. Uh, would you like to expand a bit more on that? Yeah, so uh, this is not an area that I work on directly, but uh, there have been a number of uh, recent reports, some of them just in the last few weeks, about some exciting new successes, particularly using empagliflozin um, as an SGLT2 inhibitor and really some of the new outcomes in terms of secondary prevention, in terms of its effectiveness and reducing cardiovascular outcomes and renal outcomes have been very impressive, especially in the area of heart failure. In fact, uh, some uh, studies, including the Emperor Reduce trial, uh, have shown that there's some improvement in heart function and heart tissue uh, as a result of the use of empagliflozin in people with diabetes uh, who've been treated um, with this uh, agent. And, and so it's exciting to see these new heart failure outcomes or improvement in, in heart function in people with heart failure um, who have diabetes taking these anti-diabetes medications, and also improvement in kidney uh, function as well. Um, some of the improvement in heart failure have been in, even in people with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which I, I find really uh, quite striking. And, and even whether, whether or not they had chronic kidney disease at baseline. So uh, some of these results were just recently presented um, at the Kidney Week 2020 program, and some of these results have been published in circulation. And so I, I would say, um, in the context of secondary prevention, um, the STGLT2 inhibitors, especially empagliflozin, have, have um, uh, increasing good news. Now, how about on a clinical level uh, with, the, with the metabolic syndrome epidemic? How about having a very low threshold for doing a gastric bypass? I mean, we've seen patients who've had a gastric bypass uh, within three to six months before they've even lost much weight. Uh, we have seen reversal uh, of, of diabetes start and actually become fairly effective. Uh, where, where, where do you, what do you think about the, the uh, liver, you know, enteric connection and the role of the hormonal milieu that results from uh, food entering the small bowel and the results that have, that have been obtained by diverting that and, and doing a gastric bypass? What, what's your take on that sort of uh, metabolic scenario? Yeah, this is a, this is a very interesting area, um, and, and, and it's certainly an area that's had a lot of attention in recent years, but uh, I'd like to give you a bit of a historical context to this. So you mentioned in the introduction that 
I spent five years at East Carolina University Brody School of Medicine, and the the mascot there is the pirates. Um, well, one of the early pirates was a surgeon named Walter Pories, and Walter Pories was the first one to recognize that in subjects with who had undergone gastric bypass that some of them recovered from diabetes almost immediately. Like you said, even before there was any kind of weight loss or, or opportunity to change uh, lifestyle patterns. And, and he and his team decided to study this phenomenon. I think his initial report on this was back in the 1970s. And so he pulled together a team of endocrinologists and scientists and other experts to try to understand what is the link between the gut and food intake, um, the stomach and the small intestine in particular, with these rather dramatic changes in metabolic status and diabetes status. And that led to uh, studies that ultimately pointed to the incretins as the molecular mediators of some of this crosstalk with the gut. And, and so we have a whole new slew of incretin uh, compounds that are part of the diabetes therapeutic regimen now. Um, and so I, I had an opportunity to to witness some of Walter Pori's work and some of the team's work on this this phenomenon that's been studied for quite some years. So it's it's very exciting. I think what we have in some of these newer agents um, is basically the molecular components of the surgical observation that you can, in some people, cure diabetes by bypassing the small intestine. This is using the RU-NY procedure. That's correct. Yeah, it, it's it's not on everyone's front burner, but you know we see it in the uh, gastrointestinal world to overcome gastroparesis. I often have a very low threshold to kind of do away with the stomach, uh, and therefore we don't have to get gastroparesis. If you're overweight and uh, you're going nowhere and you have back pain and you're in pretty bad shape, why not uh, sort of uh, get two or three benefits out of one surgery and one could be, uh, you know, long-term maybe uh, minimizing your diabetes. So, uh, yeah, it's it's always been discussed. It doesn't seem to be have been totally embraced by diabetologists. I think maybe surgeons have... Uh, a bit more aggressive. I don't think diabetologists are preaching the gospel of bypass very much. Well, what, what's your sense about that? Well, I, I think it's been a slow development over time as the evidence base increases and as we understand the incretin effect much better. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that there are certainly uh, cases and individuals where bypass surgery is indicated and warranted. Uh, and I think as part of the therapeutic regimen, it, it certainly makes sense to be part of our, our armamentarium for treating people with severe diabetes, uh, especially and and especially individuals who um, are severely obese. Uh, but but in in any case, it, I see it as part of the picture and a legitimate part of the picture. Um, but we have to, of course, make decisions on a case by case basis on whether it whether it's appropriate. And probably in many people, it's not appropriate, but there's certainly some where it is. Well, I can't let you go, I guess, uh, without, you know, taking, uh, uh, asking you a question about your other role and how you, uh, how you manage a, a research empire in, in a pandemic and any um, 
tips or predictions as to uh, how it's going to change the world of uh, conducting uh, basic and clinical research over the next uh, few years and and uh, what's your take on how we're going to uh, have to adapt to a sort of a hybrid lifestyle somehow any um, any early thoughts on that without putting you on under the uh, you know on the hot seat too much yeah, it, it's been quite an adventure since early March. So uh, the president of the university asked me to, uh, rather suddenly and unexpectedly from my perspective, <laughs> uh, he asked me to fill in uh, as the interim VP for research for the university. I had held that role in another university. Um, I was hired into that role in, in that case. But here I was suddenly asked to fill in, and that was early March. Within about two weeks, uh, we were really beginning to wrap our heads around the full uh, sense of where this COVID pandemic was going. And so um, I got thrown into, very quickly thrown into uh, a national conversation with counterparts at other universities, uh, trying to figure out what do we do with our research operations during this. And this uh, demanded a lot of attention and took a lot of our time to figure out to what extent are we going to close down research operations and then uh, once we got through the initial part of the pandemic, then we had to figure out how are we going to reopen our research laboratories and research clinics um, in such a way to not endanger our staff, our patients, our, our research subjects. And so that really occupied much of the month of April, May, June, and even into early July. But by July, we had figured out a way uh, and enough was understood about reasonable basic precautions for COVID so that we could reopen our research uh, projects uh, with limited operations. And that's where we've been operating since early July. Is we've, our projects have been able to move forward. We've taken precautions by screening the people coming into our buildings, by insisting on the use of masks inside the buildings by doing the most we can with uh, reasonable social distancing while at work, as well as while we're on lunch breaks and other activities within our buildings. And we've been able to do this without, at least at, at this university, we've been able to do it without any, any detectable cases of COVID spread within the university. Uh, we've had to deal with some staff members in the university who catch COVID from family members and from community exposure, but. We've been able to function for the last few months without any known cases, any new cases of COVID from campus spread. And so I think um, you know, if, we, if the vaccine comes, which it's, it's about to come, uh, a series of vaccines, if we're able to conquer COVID that way, that's the best way. But if there's uh, a lingering effect of the COVID pandemic, I think we'll be able to indefinitely continue our work with this limited operation mode and be able to take reasonable precautions so that we can continue research. It's ironic that we're shutting, at least back in March and April, we were shutting down research operations at a time when we needed to do exactly the opposite. Um, you know, when the world's facing a health crisis, we need to be doing more research, not less. And fortunately, um, many uh, were able to do that under these limited operation scenarios. I, I think the vaccine will change the landscape going forward. I think this is a short to medium term challenge for us now. But if it ends up being a longer term challenge, we can continue doing what we're doing now. 
Well, I really appreciate your time, uh, Dr. Stoller. This has been very informative. Um, uh, I think uh, clearly you know, you know, you're tapping into the future of uh, diabetic control. Um, we, many of us in the clinical world, unfortunately, are trying to catch up with the complications and hold the line, but um, obviously very late and uh, not really able to reverse very much. So hopefully your research and some of the work you're doing will be able to be extrapolated into some kind of primary care initiative where we can become much more effective in, uh, in nipping this in the bud, so to speak. So certainly I, I want to thank you for the time and expertise you've given us today. I hope, I know our listeners are both very appreciative and have benefited a lot from this. And, um, um, we look forward to, uh, I, I look forward to working with you, obviously, as a collaborator here at Texas Tech. We're so fortunate to have you. And um, I think on behalf of all our listeners, want to wish you and your family the best for Thanksgiving and to, uh, in a city that's under siege, namely El Paso, Texas, um, to remain safe and well. Um, thank you very thank much. Thank you, Dr. McCallum. Thank you, Dr. McCallum. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, our primary goal is to translate these new screening tools into the clinic, especially the primary care clinic. And um, and uh, thank you. This is not just a scientific exercise. It's it's really uh, uh, ideally going to translate into real change in the clinic setting. Thank you for the opportunity. And and uh, I I'm really glad to be a part of this. And I hope everyone stays safe. And for our listeners, this podcast will be officially posted, Karina, when? Yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow. And so were the last 12 or so that we've had. Some very interesting ones dating back. It's available uh, as um, in the journal on the, on the webpage. You can get access to, to podcasts, including the one that Dr. Zestola uh, uh, so skillfully has conducted. So with that colleagues i think we'll say goodbye for this podcast wish everyone the best for holidays ahead and uh, and good luck with uh, remaining healthy and safe uh, thank you very much and want to thank karina Respina for her expertise as my assistant i think we'll finish our podcast goodbye for now <laughs>